0: Hello and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guests today are Caitlin Barron and Alex Halu gebre from the Luminos Fund, an education nonprofit that aims to get the most marginalized students into mainstream schools in Ethiopia, Liberia, Lebanon, and soon Ghana. It uses an accelerated joyful learning program targeting out-of-school 10-year-olds with the goal of getting them up to speed so they can join grade four. Luminos has partnered with the University of Sussex since its inception to track its results, which show that 90% of its students advanced to mainstream school, and those students finish primary school at twice the rate of their government-educated peers. It's worth pausing on that. They take the kids who have dropped out, mostly due to extreme poverty, and in 10 months are able to deliver up to three years of learning. Mainstream those kids, and get them to stay in school at double the rate of those kids that never dropped out in the first place. So much of what we're doing is is actually
1: empowering teachers to be really thoughtful about how can I look closely at each child as an individual and understand what they know and don't know and and meet them where they are. And that's a core principle of
0: just good education everywhere, right? We discussed our unique approach, which involves building a learning mindset in students and parents, working with communities, and delivering a well-developed, fun curriculum. The group trains community members as teachers and relies heavily on families and communities for learning, even when those families are illiterate. We talk about the many innovations which came out of COVID and why they will keep all of these because they believe learning has to take place everywhere and all the time. We also discuss how receptive governments are right now to accelerating learning and to doing things differently and how disappointing the international response has been to such a unique moment. Kaylin is the founder and CEO, and Alex joins us from Ethiopia, where he is country director and regional strategic advisor. Alex and Kaylin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jenny. Let's start before COVID, if we can remember that far back. Luminos has an accelerated model of learning, which is implemented in second-chance schools. Can you explain to us how that works?
1: Alex and I founded Luminos to help the last one in 10 children in the world who are still denied the chance to even go to primary school to get a second chance to learn. We work with children who are 10 or 11 years old and have been kept out of school, most often quite simply because of poverty and a need to work on family farms or help out with siblings at home but sometimes because of conflict or displacement. And we work with children who are really, as they reach 10 or 11, sort of nearing almost the the end of childhood in their context. And we're able to catch children at that moment and provide what we call a second chance to learn.
2: Would you say
0: that government schools typically have a joyful learning approach?
2: That is the intention of every government to have a joyful and child-friendly teaching learning process almost in every school. But the intention and what is exactly there on the ground varies because it has to do with teachers training. It has to do the passion of the teachers, the motivation of the teachers, and also the class size the government schools have. And most government schools have large class size, which is somehow inconvenient to have such kind of interactive and joyful learning. So we are doing towards that. We are influencing the government classrooms also to adopt our methods of making education playful and joyful. We don't only limit ourselves in our second chance program. We are trying to influence also the mainstream education system, because unless we influence the mainstream education system, the the change and the impact will be too little.
0: Caitlin, can you just talk briefly about the acceleration model?
1: So as Alex had shared, working in local communities, we recruit and train high potential young people who are not necessarily academically qualified to be teachers, but who know the first few grades of the school curriculum and who are prepared to learn to teach in a fundamentally different way one of the constraints about making joyful learning a reality anywhere in the world is that the only kind of teaching any of us knows really is the kind of teaching we learned under, right? So it's not that anyone has the intention to make education dull and lifeless and stressful, <laughs> but if that's the system you've come through, in essence, that's what you know. And so, you know, unless you have a program and a training approach that can give teachers new and different ideas for engaging children differently. We can't expect anything different. And that's really our work. And so we run a rich, intensive, smaller classroom. We cap our class size at about 25 students. And in the US or UK context, that doesn't sound terribly small, but in a place like Ethiopia, that's about half the size of a normal classroom. And we have a longer school day and a longer school week. So children have actually four times as many hours Of literacy instruction in our program as they would in a typical school. And what that means is that in one 10-month school year, we can help children cover the same amount that a child would cover in three years in a mainstream local school. And what that means then is that children who complete our program can mainstream in their local village school with children who are more or less their own age. And that's what really sets them up to actually stay and succeed in the system. You know, just like in a context that might be closer to home, you know, if you have a child who's fallen grades and grades behind, if you have an 11-year-old sitting in a classroom with a bunch of six-year-olds, the odds of them persisting through that learning journey are, are quite low. And so we find that this sort of short, intensive injection of, of catch-up instruction then really actually gives children a fighting chance to progress through school as they ought.
0: And what evidence do you have that it works? So we have been blessed with a
1: rich and multifaceted evaluation partnership with the University of Sussex, actually, since inception. And Alex and our team in in Ethiopia have really made that partnership possible. The Sussex team have looked at every aspect of our work. So lots of quantitative learning outcomes, lots of rich qualitative evaluation, but most importantly, they've done a longitudinal evaluation. So tracking students six years out after completion of the program. And what they've found is is not only do graduates of our program go back into the mainstream system better prepared academically than their peers, but actually six years out, graduates of the Luminos program are completing school at twice the rate of their peers. And so we're seeing not just this intensive short-term bump, but a really long-term lasting effect. And there's at least two critical reasons why. I mean, one is that our program is crucially unlocking the basics of literacy and numeracy for students. So students leave our program knowing how to read. That means even if they land in a highly imperfect learning environment, their ability to self-direct their own learning is fundamentally at a different place than it would be if you hadn't really cracked that. But the the second thing is is really a sense of of self-efficacy and self-belief, especially in a place like Ethiopia. Nowadays in Ethiopia, almost every child starts grade one. That's an amazing achievement of the Ethiopian education system that was far from true 20 years ago. The challenge is we still have a massive revolving door of dropout. So, before the end of first grade in Ethiopia, 18% of children have dropped out. That means most of the children entering our program there have tried to learn, struggled, and failed. And so Quite a lot of the work that we do is actually changing the child's mindset, changing the parent's mindset about what's possible. And because they learned so much in such a short period of time, there becomes a sort of irrefutable proof point, right? Like this child was barely identifying the alphabet at the beginning of the year. They're reading short passages of text at the end. Even if you, an illiterate parent, can't yourself read, you can see with your own eyes how much your child has learned. You, You have sort of incontrovertible kind of personal evidence that that this child is capable of learning as much, if not more, than anyone else.
0: Alex, tell us a little bit about why those kids are dropping out.
2: Much of the reason have to do with poverty, as Kathleen already mentioned, because child labor is very rampant in Ethiopia. Parents need their the support of their children. In Ethiopia, the what makes education expensive is Uh, more than the direct cost, it is opportunity cost. I'm sending a child the cost that family foregone because children serve parents in different farming practice because Ethiopia is agrarian economy. you know over 85% of the community are leading their lives through farming. So children play crucial role in the farming activity. So whenever there is chance or whenever parents are not satisfied by by the education, they easily you know, pull them out. And the other factor could be also the inconvenience a school system, including the poor teaching-learning process, also uh, could be a cause for dropping out. We don't call these children dropped out; we call them pushed out, because the system pushed them out instead of they drop. Because because of the system is not favorable for them to keep them in the school. Most of the time, girls drop than boys most schools are not convenient for girls there are you know majority of schools don't have a separate latrine or you know something suitable for girls and if you consider that like sanitary pad or different personal personal kind of equipment these items are lacking in the ethiopian education system so the factors are many coming to the previous question The second chance model contributes also because its residual benefits of learning is also high. In a former second chance students who dropped out before completing primary education perform better than government school students who attended the same schools and has has also dropped out. In effect, in a former second chance students who dropped out of government school and still reached higher scores. And after they drop out, than government um, counterparts who had also dropped out. So these findings suggest that there are residual benefits of uh, the second chance program in terms of learning outcome, even for those who do not complete their primary school. If this accelerated
0: model works, why isn't everybody using it?
1: I mean, I would say, you know, quite honestly, more than anything else, the COVID moment has brought that exact conversation to the fore. Both sort of looking at what we've learned from this work, not solely for what does it mean for a 10-year-old child who's been kept out of school for three grades, but also what might it mean for an entire country of children who have been kept out of school for a year or maybe more. And so I think there is a profound sort of exploration and unpacking of our model and our work. And, And one of the things Alex and I like to talk about is, look, we want to grow and scale our work to every child who needs it. But we also think there are elements of what we do that are relevant to this moment. So those elements include, you know, I mean there is a massive shortage of teachers even before COVID, right? UNESCO estimates an additional 69 million teachers are needed in order to educate the entire 258 million children who are out of school. I mean that's a massive number that the countries that we work in will will struggle to ever fulfill. And so a key learning from our work is like hey, we can think expansively about who, who is a qualified teacher, who, who can teach children what things in what way with what kind of support. And I think we have shown that you can reach beyond the traditional teaching core to play a critical role in, in learning and catch up. And I think equally, you know, a core element of, of what we do is train teachers to be really thoughtful about understanding where each child is and meeting them where they are. One of the things that Alex always speaks so eloquently to is that even though our students have not been in school, it doesn't mean they don't know things, right? So for, you know, he'll talk about how children entering our program may never have been inside a classroom. They can actually be relatively good at doing simple arithmetic in their head, but they won't know how to symbolize it, how to actually take that mental math and actually write it down on the page. So, so much of what we're doing is is actually empowering teachers to be really thoughtful about how can I look closely at each child as an individual and understand what they know and don't know and, and meet them where they are. And that's a core principle of just good education everywhere, right? That obviously works for our work, but that, that is uh, no less important for the mainstream. So yeah, this moment has been a really interesting time of kind of projecting those lessons learned outward.
0: And our government's more receptive to you and to your learnings and to your approaches now that sort of they're also very directly confronting a need to catch up.
1: We have to look for a silver lining in this moment. The one, the one thing we can turn to is that this is obviously it's fundamentally a completely exogenous event, right? It's totally out of the hands of ministries of education across the continent. And to some extent, I think that really frees frees people up to be much more open door than they might otherwise be. And Alex and his team in Ethiopia have really leaned in to this moment with the Ministry of Education there, providing a range of support, you know, beyond just training them on our program to actually, just helping them plan through this extraordinary moment. I mean, you know, globally, we've lived through a completely unprecedented educational event, right? The world has never had anywhere near this many children in school. And therefore the world has never had nearly this many children out of school. And the process of bringing children back in an environment of School systems that were already incredibly strapped for cash and are now only more so. I mean, UNESCO estimates ministries of education around the world need an additional 200 million dollars a year, you know, just to begin to sort of map what the loss has been. And this is in a time when many countries we work in have seen a real economic contraction. So just the availability of that of that tax base is all the more
0: limiting. Let's talk a little bit about. The COVID response and your classrooms and your approach. What was sort of your primary goal and focus for your students and families? You know, sort of in the crisis of the moment when you kind of said, "This is what we need to do right now." What was it?
1: This was first and foremost an economic and a nutritional crisis for our families. So when lockdown happened in the spring of 2020, it happened in all of our country programs simultaneously. One of the things we instituted was a phone-based survey with a sample of parents. Uh, So once a week being able to call parents and just ask them, how is the family doing? How are children progressing? Are they able to study with school books to some form or fashion at home? And one of the things we saw incredibly early in the cycle was, you know, families who had been getting by on two meals a day, shifting to one meal a day, families who were surviving on rice or cassava alone, no longer able to afford beans. Then one of the things we found pretty early on was just honestly keeping children fed through this crisis became a real and tangible priority. And we were able to pivot and convert our school meals program into a sort of home-based nutritional packets. Good news, the sort of the heart of that lockdown didn't last too terribly long in the countries we were in and and families seem to have come through it. But the longer term challenge that Alex and the team and I really focused on has been the question of, of student identity. So the children we work with are already the most marginalized, right? They were already out of school before the crisis began. They'd only just begun to think of themselves as students. They'd only just begun to establish the behavior of getting up and going to class five days a week. And so one of the things we really wanted to enforce as much as anything else was preserving the child's self-identity as a student, preserving the parent's commitment to education in general. And so a whole bunch of work that Alex and his colleagues did in terms of micro classes and getting materials out to the students was like, yes, absolutely about preserving academic learning and trying to avoid learning loss. But I also, quite frankly, was really just trying to preserve that connection. And Alex, you can talk a bit about like what, what specifically did you do, which was a huge range of different things.
2: Among many impacts uh, COVID brought, the major one is it puts over 27 million children out of education. I'm not saying out of schooling, just out of education, because most uh, children come from uh, non-literate parents, non-literate families. These children are first-generation learners, so they don't have chance to continue their education while they are at home. So when they came back to school and they already wasted seven months without without education, and now hence, the ordinary curriculum and way of teaching wouldn't serve. Now during that crisis, luminous and its partners were the only education actors that had ready-made solution for the problem. Uh, we had a condensed curriculum divided by months, which you know compressed one-year curriculum into few months, and also good training package. Uh, for the teachers on how to accelerate learning and also methods of assessment and ensuring mastery of learning. This fact further raised the interest of the government to to accept the second chance model, not only for bringing out of school children back to school, but also to create resilient education system, which withstand such kind of crisis. From the outset, the second chance recognizes the indispensable role of parents in shaping the children. And we have methods such as family-based learning, in which children take a topic home and involve their parents, uh, discuss with their parents, and bring lessons back to the classroom. And we call that family-based learning. We we have also community-based learning, in which children go to the community, to the village, consult community leaders, elderly people. And learn how the social fabric constructed, and come back to the classroom and lecture their classmates. Uh, so, in the during COVID time, what we did was we recognized that education has to be offered through multiple ways. We recognized that education should be multimodal, provided in a variety of ways, not only face-to-face classroom teaching. We used or leveraged. All available resources, including radio, including the cell phone, the mobile phone, which parents have, you know, these days, mobile phone penetration in Ethiopia is very big. Like 59% of the community is using mobile phone. We used mobile phone to transmit some message, short message. We used post offices to send some packages uh, for parents to read, parents and children to to tackle. We used also to distribute COVID safe package, uh, mostly challenge which should be tackled by parents and children. We call that intergenerational learning because that challenge should be tackled in collaboration. So we used all this type of means to make sure children continue learning even if they're at home. That's why we were able to transfer, if I'm not wrong, 92% of our children to grade four after uh, the year in 2019, 20 based on the evaluation of the the education, uh, government education offices.
0: Let me ask a question. If the parents aren't literate and you're sending these packages home, how do they access it?
2: You're right. Most parents are illiterate. However, they are not ignorant. They have a better analysis capacity than their children even know how to manage their family, calculate and use their income wisely. And living a second chance teachers were sending readable materials with some challenges that can be solved by the children in collaboration with their parents.
1: A key piece that sort of makes this support model possible is that because we're drawing teachers from the very communities where children live, even in the lockdown period, teachers were able to go door to door. So as Alex is sharing in his example of sort of thoughtful word problems that are really drawn from the context, the extent to which a teacher is presenting the problem, even a parent who can't read, is able to be a part of the problem-solving process via mental math. That was a key advantage for us in the COVID moment was that you know, typically teachers come from outside of a community. So therefore, when schools closed, they left but because the teachers that we train are drawn from the communities themselves it meant they were right there as a resource. Obviously having to operate house to house, obviously having to be socially distant, but still able to, as much as facilitating some degree of home-based learning, again, reinforcing that identity of, of each child as a student and a learner.
0: We haven't talked about micro schools. Did those pop up? Did those work? Anything you might take from that moving forward?
2: Yes, uh, I think all of the methods we use during COVID time, we're going to use them in the future because the basic principle is learning has to take place everywhere, not only in a school, So we we should encourage, and we will encourage children to continue learning, even while they are at home. So that's why we encourage to continue these kind of methods, including micro classes, micro classes is a group of five students, maybe neighboring students who come together and study together and assist each other to solve some problems. And those children who are ahead, assisting the other children who are lagging behind. So this kind of tactics or techniques will be continuing in the future. In in the normal second chance classes, we organize our students in group of five. They sit in group of five. So that kind of grouping will continue in out of classroom so that they can continue helping
1: each other. And it was a really interesting experience, Jenny. We ran micro classes in a couple different countries, you know, as we sort of moved out of the height of lockdown, but when schools were still closed. So we were permitted to meet with groups of students outdoors. We'd have sort of three micro classes a day running in a given community. So about an hour and a half of instruction in each cycle and then a, a turnover time. No illusions that that's the same as a full school day, but um, it was a vitally important way of keeping that connection between students and school. We were humbled at the actually how high the attendance was. We had about eighty-five percent attendance in micro classes, which is no small thing. Because I will tell you, for example, it's all well and good to say you're going to have three micro classes in a day, but if you have classes that start at you know eight and eleven thirty and 1.30, but no one in your community has a watch. What that means is inevitably the teacher is actually running around door to door and physically gathering up students to meet at a certain time in a certain place under a tree. So I think as much as the the children took from that experience is is really a testament to them and their parents about how hungry they were for education. It was not easy logistically, but it was great to see the resourcefulness.
0: I've heard you both say that engagement with family is so critical, and that's a part of your model and was before COVID. I'm curious whether you noticed any significant changes after COVID because education was brought home I mean, for that reason, and whether you've been able to measure that in any way. I know that's quite tricky.
1: The measurement question is an exciting one, and I think that's absolutely where we're headed next and one that we're leaning into. One of the measurement elements we've added in this year's program has actually been explicitly year-on-year measuring socio-emotional learning alongside literacy and numeracy. Now, we used to do socio-emotional evaluations on a sort of one-off basis with you know, an international researcher like, like the Sussex team. Um, but what we've been able to do now is actually literally build it into our standard year-on-year evaluation so that we're starting to have that, that real sense of visibility. But you know, a core belief of our work from inception has been that there's an enormous set of psychological barriers between the most vulnerable families and formal schooling. And formal schooling in most of the contexts we work in is not terribly welcoming, right? It's a large classroom of 40 to 50 kids. It's a sort of stressed and overwhelmed and probably overly strict teacher. And historically, parents are, are absolutely not welcome within the classroom. And so that's one of the things that Alex and his team have really tried to turn on their heads and just sort of You know, ask parents to sort of set aside your own self belief that because I don't know how to read, I can't enable my own child's learning. Come into the classroom, be a part of this, share what it is that you know, and and let's create a classroom environment that celebrates knowledge beyond the four walls of the classroom and so that there's much less of that kind of invisible line between the community and the learning environment. And so even though like operationally, all these things were new for us, right? Micro classes, bringing workbooks home, delivering food to kids. I mean, physically, you know, this was our team going out to homes and classrooms, but philosophically, I mean, this is very much in line with what we've always believed education needs to be.
0: Could you tell us maybe about a family or a few students sort of how they coped with COVID and, and what this all looked like for them? There is a
2: story of one mother whose name is Shure. This mother has four uh, girls, and she lives in Walaita. Welaita is in the southern part of Ethiopia, and, and Damot Sore district. In this district, LuminaS has been, uh, you know, operational in the last four five years. So Shure's older uh, children got married early before going to school. And when the Second Chance program came to their village, and Shure decided to send her last daughter the younger daughter, whose name is Emush, Emush to the second chance class, Emush uh, was 10 by Z It was in 2019, 20 academic year when she joined the second chance program. Unfortunately, the class interrupted due to COVID, you know, after just six months. So Emush goes back home and you know, without education, without schooling. So Emush's mother exposed to neighbors' pressure again. And now the neighbors start pressuring her, try to persuade her. Why don't you marry marry her to someone who can benefit you a lot? But the mother surely resisted not to to marry Emush. Uh, But the temptation was very, very uh, high and difficult. And after some 20 days, because it took us 20 days to... To think this micro classroom and other approaches, you know, there was 20 days of slack period in which children did nothing and we did nothing. It was a shocking time during that time. After the 20 day shutdown, Chure, the mother, was contacted by our facilitator, the teacher, who told her that there is still chance for a Mush to join grade four next year. He explained to her that he is ready to continue teaching. Emush and her friends in small classes near home, and Emush started learning next to her door. They spent two hours in uh, our know, day and continued supporting her mother in the rest of the time. She was visiting the micro class frequently. The mother was also frequently visiting. And sure, Emush, you know, through that micro classes, could continue her learning, completed the lesson and joined grade 4 at the end of the year now she is in grade 5 last year she joined grade 4 now she is in grade 5 You know, had not been for the micro intervention she, i mean amush would would have been married to someone else and this is not a story of a girl it is a story of many more girls you know who who were in similar situation and over 1,000 limited second chance students got similar chance to continue their education in their vicinity, mostly close to their homes. And COVID helped us you know, to maximize the engagement of parents in the teaching learning process, especially girls. You know, girls are exposed to many other problems when there is distance from school uh, to home. So the micro class helped, especially girls
0: Caitlin, tell me how the international community is responding. Yeah. Education has always been a bit of an ugly stepchild to global health, for example, in terms of funding. Has the international community responded and upped its funding? And how are you responding to this moment? It's a glasses
1: half full glasses, half empty moment. So often for our work in international education, we're, we're thinking about education for other people's children in faraway countries. And the unique legacy of this moment is that we we all recognize as parents everywhere, actually what it's meant for children to be out of school, what it means for them academically, but equally what it means for them socially and developmentally. And so I think in a very real sense, I mean, we have a gift of profound empathy in this moment um, for communities to look across the globe and, and have a window into understanding what what the exclusion from school really means and what what is really lost for children when, when they miss that opportunity. I'd also say, I mean, specifically our funders in the immediate aftermath of COVID responded with both a very clear commitment to continue their funding at the same level, and even more importantly, a commitment to open up the flexibility of that funding. So we really had funders who recognized like, everyone's going to need to do a hard pivot. And so we're going to need to do something now and something different two months from now and something different two months from now again. And I think that recognition, that flexibility and and sustained support for us at Luminos was invaluable. All of that being said, if we look at the macro picture, I mean, there's an enormous funding gap right now. And, And understandably, there's an appropriate immediate focus on funding the global health crisis of the pandemic, but ultimately it's the education crisis of of COVID that will be the most long lasting. And so my hope is that we actually capitalize on this moment of empathy and really lean into understanding, not just the task of actually getting children back to the classroom door, but actually helping them succeed in school.
0: And are you getting governments stepping up and saying, we will fund you to teach us this catch-up? I mean, I recognize they have extremely limited resources. I don't expect this to be a sort of major revenue source. However, if that integration happens, that's an opportunity for systems change.
1: Then, one gift of this moment is that with all our government relations, it has absolutely been an open door. Our Ethiopia collaboration with government is the most mature, but we do that kind of work in other countries as well. And government's appetite to take forward this work with their own teachers is I mean, we're generally racing to keep up with them rather than the reverse. So you know and and I think honestly that's an important message to send to the funders, right? This is a sort of unfrozen moment, right? Governments are, are desperate to respond and respond appropriately. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of opportunity for change. Before I founded Luminos, I was a donor. These are the kind of opportunities that, that you long for as a foundation or a bilateral, where you see a government ready to change. You see partners working with that government to help them be there. Like, Why wouldn't
0: you as a funder want to come in alongside that? And so in light of that, what are the goals for your organization right now? What, do you, what would you like to see happen?
2: We realize that the main duty bearer is government in terms of providing education. We are a small, innovative organization which uh, strives to bring new innovations and uh, showcase that innovation, try to impact the country's education system. So we are working to bring about a system change nationally. So the main duty bearer in terms of providing education is governments everywhere in the globe but why we are looking still for additional funding our innovation our uh, model should be a reasonable size to influence the large education system in countries if you take in, in ethiopia uh, there is 37000 schools so our model should be impactful to influence the national education system uh, so otherwise we don't have a nightmare to replace a government Rather, we want to contribute something new, innovation to the government to change the system.
0: You get kids from five words a minute to 39 words a minute. What would a child at grade level in year two in say the UK be at? How does that measure up?
1: The 39 words a minute puts our students at the level of a third grader or fourth grader in their country context in the UK context where reading begins early and is intensive, that probably lines up with a grade one or grade two. The UK actually is faster off the blocks than almost any country on the literacy front for good or for ill.
0: Yeah, I would argue for ill, having (laughs) come from the American system into the UK system and they were like, let's go. (laughs) Um, And just one last question quickly, how are you working with other NGOs um, to help teachers assess learners when they arrive And every week after that, is that a big part of your growth strategy moving forward?
1: Our work everywhere involves working through community-based organizations. So in each country, we have a small team of folks who work on curriculum, pedagogy, training, and monitoring and evaluation. But we actually fund local community-based nonprofits to deliver the work. And what that means is that we can be much closer to the communities that we're actually serving than we could be if we did it all in-house. And it also means that we have a wonderful sort of co-creation opportunity in each country between the community-based organizations who are running the classrooms and our team who are designing the the curriculum and the pedagogy. But the assessment piece um, is a key element of what we do that that we believe strongly is relevant for every classroom across the global South. And really what we teach teachers to do is quite simply on a week-by-week basis, actually time out how many words per minute a child can read it's a very simple assessment i mean it is a blunt instrument but but that's its power right is that any teacher anywhere can do this and if you do it consistently you can actually both have a clear picture of how is this class moving through the learning of the year but also importantly you know which children are struggling so you know when our coaches go to classrooms Think about a classroom visit anywhere, right? Someone shows up from outside. The teacher's always going to call upon their star pupil to stand up and answer all the questions, right? When our coach goes to a classroom, we have them say, show me the three to five kids who are struggling the most. Let's go sit with them. Let's help understand them. And and that's the power of of assessment at the classroom level, right? It's, It's really helping that teacher have an individual understanding of each child.
0: If you were sitting in front of a host of the world's billionaires, what's your kind of two-line pitch for them? Let's start with Alex.
2: I think my two-line pitch is education is the most powerful tool to fight against poverty. So investing in education always pays off.
0: I
1: think building on Alex's theme, education is the only thing we give a child that can never be taken away. And we know that there's a lifetime of impact from each additional year of schooling. And yet, international education still awaits its great marquee philanthropist. Education internationally is still waiting for its its, quote unquote Bill Gates. He may have nibbled around the edges, but he hasn't really jumped in and made anywhere near the kind of sea change difference that he's made in global health. And so for any billionaire on the sidelines, Just looking for a place in the international philanthropic landscape where there is an extraordinary impact yet to be made and an incredible legacy to build. I I can't think of a better place in international education.
0: I wish there were more female billionaires because my guess is my prediction would be it's gonna be a woman. But anyways, that's a whole nother story. A quick question to wrap up from both of you. What is your favorite book about learning?
2: Make It Stick. The Science of Successful Learning, I don't really remember the authors.
1: My favorite book about learning and all things international development is one called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, a book by Anne Fadiman about a Hmong family navigating the U.S. medical system, which I think is the perfect analogy for families in any post-colonial context
0: navigating their education systems. I read that book recently. It Will Undo You. And Make It Stick is by Peter Brown and Uh, Quarled Marshall. Okay, what is your favorite book not about learning?
2: Among the books uh, that's written in English, The Sign and the Seal, the quest for the the lost Ark of the Covenant.
0: Perfect. And uh, Caitlin?
1: Sign and the Seal is a great answer from an Ethiopian since the the Ark is meant to have been lost in Ethiopia.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that context. I'm immediately Googling
1: it, by the way. It's one of Ethiopia's great claims to fame. Yeah. I can't possibly name a favorite book, but we are gearing up to enter Ghana. So I've been reading lots of things about Ghana recently. And speaking of being undone by a book, I was undone by Homegoing by Yaa
2: Great. And
0: final question. What are you binge watching?
2: I watch English Premier League football. I'm the fan of Man United. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, <laughs> I, you I, I might have to cancel the whole podcast. Since, <laughs> since my childhood,
2: I, I've been a fan of Man United and <laughs> I never missed the much Caitlin. what about you
0: i've been diving
1: into an oldie an old canadian series called slings and arrows which is about a theater company and and sort of i guess more profoundly about the the foibles of humanity writ large
0: i'll look into that one alex and Caitlin, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing with us some of the journey of the past few years thank you thank you jenny three things really stuck out to me from this conversation one is the effectiveness of Luminos's accelerated joyful model. You can pack three years of learning into 10 months with extended days for the most marginalized students and with well-documented success. It begs the question what we can do everywhere in the world to accelerate learning. The second is the role of the community here and how committed Luminos is to learning everywhere and from everyone, with families and elders and small groups, with community leaders, with parents who are, as Alex says, illiterate but not ignorant, We hear so much about lifelong learning, but Alex really paints a clear picture of what that looks like in some of the most impoverished settings in the world. Finally, I was struck by the receptiveness of governments right now to change things, and I'm angry more funding is not surfacing to aid that process. As Caitlin said, we have a gift of profound empathy at this moment, because the whole world saw what exclusion from school really means, not just academically, but socially and developmentally. Kids need to be in school, and we all know this fact. The question is, what are we gonna do with that knowledge? We all understand that the health crisis is the immediate one, but it does feel like education is always the forgotten longer term one. Like Caitlin, I hope one of the world's billionaires sees the opportunity here to transform the lives of children and takes it. Mackenzie Scott seems to be edging her way into that territory with her support of historically black colleges and universities. I also wish we didn't have to rely on billionaires, but they exist and their wealth is real and the impact could be profound. Will anyone step up? Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.